0: Isaiah 49 verses 8 through 26 is our Old Testament reading this morning. Isaiah 49 verses 8 through 26. This is God's word. Let's give it our careful attention. Thus says the Lord. In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves." They shall feed along the roads, and their pastors shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens! Be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have, after you've lost the others, will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell." Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was left alone. But these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers. And their queens, your nursing mothers, they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they who shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible will be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Amen. Thanks be to God for that word from Isaiah. And now our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 37. There in Isaiah we read we read of the Lord uh, delivering his people from their bondage to the mighty oppressors around them. And here in, in Matthew chapter 12, we see Christ is the one who binds the mighty the mighty man, the strong man, Satan himself, and plunders his kingdom and brings his people out of that kingdom into his kingdom. Matthew twelve twenty two through 37. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for every part of your rich and varied word. Truly, Lord, this is the most precious thing this world affords the revelation from God Himself. Lord, we would be those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at Your Word, who who hear Your Word and respond in humble faith and obedience. Lord, that's a work that only You can do. So we pray, humble our hearts, open them to receive this Word as the very Word of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Here in Matthew 12 verses 22 to 37, our, our text this morning, Jesus' ministry is is heating up. Uh, the, the tensions are rising, the temperatures rising, things are, are getting uh, uh, are, are are getting more intense. Um, the stakes are getting higher. The religious leaders are now already they've already decided to destroy him, and they're trying to make a plot to do that. Um, And and Jesus, at the same time, is getting harder and harder to argue with, harder to ignore, harder to deny. He continues to, uh, yes, challenge expectations, but also fulfill everything the Old Testament says about who the Christ will be. He's showing them that though He's not the Christ they expected, He is nonetheless the true Christ, according to the Scriptures. Back in Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus said the kingdom suffers violence. uh, That since the days of John the Baptist, the violent take it by force. In other words, the kingdom that he's bringing and and the process of establishing this kingdom is not an easy thing. It's not a cakewalk. It doesn't go smoothly. There there are interruptions. There are challenges challenges to it. and, And there's a real struggle to it. Jesus establishing the kingdom. There's a fight going on, a conflict going on. There's, there's resistance to this every step of the way. And Jesus said that this was to be expected. It's the Pharisees, of course. We, we see them fighting against Christ uh, throughout the Gospels. Um, it, but it's not just the Pharisees. It's, it's everyone who resists him. Uh, everyone who denies him and rejects him. Uh, but, but even more than that, it's also the supernatural forces of darkness. It's, it's the kingdom of Satan set against the kingdom of Christ. And in our text this morning is, is, is one conflict erupting out of that, that war between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, which goes all the way back through all the pages of Scripture to Genesis 3.15. Where God declared war on Satan for his for his for his wickedness and his sin, um, and, and and now Jesus has come, and and this is sort of this is the D Day moment of that war that started all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis. Jesus is here, right? The he landed on the beaches. Right and the, making, the, making, that, making that, that headway initial headway against the forces of darkness. Jesus is here as the king, and he's come to wage this conflict, crush the serpent's head, defeat the kingdom of the wicked one, the evil one. And he's, he's coming, and he's commanding us to repent of our sin and bow to him as the great king. He's calling us out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. He's calling the disciples to himself. He's calling the people to himself, challenging the Pharisees, and he's calling us as well. His kingdom's here. You can't stay neutral. You can't can't just say, well, I won't be for him or against him. There's no neutral ground. You're either for him or not. And you either face justification or condemnation. Jesus says, repent, turn to me, trust in me, and I will be your savior. Two points brothers and sisters, as we work through the text this morning. The first is this, the kingdom of God is upon you. Verses 22 to 29, the kingdom of God is upon you. This conflict we're talking about, the confrontation that erupts here, is kicked off when Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. There's this, there's this guy, he's under, he's under the, uh, the, the power and influence of, a, of an evil spirit, and it's made, him, it's made him mute, it's made him blind, and this man is brought to Jesus. There's nothing that any, anyone can do, but Jesus heals him. The story doesn't get many details. Matthew doesn't spill a lot of ink on this one. Uh, he doesn't tell us how Jesus healed him, whether it was a word or a touch. We, we've seen both of those things. Uh, the, the focus is not on these details; it's not on the particular circumstance of this healing, but it's on it's on what happens afterwards. It, it's showing Jesus' power. He heals this man; it's astonishing. But it's 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 the result afterwards, uh, where where we see uh, where we see the drama of the story here. That people respond to this healing. Um, With astonishment, Matthew says that they're amazed. Verse 23, all the multitudes were amazed. Interesting, he doesn't just say the crowd was amazed or the multitude was amazed. All the crowds, all the multitudes were amazed. Uh, They're asking the question, "Could could this be the son of David? It's a genuine question. They're looking at Jesus. Some things he does puzzle them. Didn't expect that. But then they see, yep, he's doing all these things that show that he is the son of David. No one's ever had this kind of authority who can just say to demons to to, to leave, and people are freed of that. No one's ever been able to heal like this. No one's ever spoken like this man. So they see Jesus, and they say, is this the son of David? Is this the king we've been waiting for? Who's going to bring about that end-time kingdom of peace and blessing and life and holiness? That's how the crowds respond. But Jesus' response from the Pharisees is much different. What do the Pharisees say? They say, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. You can hear their disgust, their contempt. This guy, this man, right? They're mocking him. They're contemptuous of him. Uh, You can hear it in their voices. This Jesus, to them, is the Antichrist. He, they, they hate everything he is, everything he's doing. They can't argue with the fact that he's powerful. He obviously has authority. He heals. He forgives. He teaches with authority. He, he casts out demons with authority. But, but, but what they see, they, they, they hate. They can't argue with it. So they say it's got to be the power of Satan. Jesus is filled with the, the prince of the, of the, of the demons. He's, he's filled with Satan himself. He's a puppet of the kingdom of Satan. That, 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 that's, that's quite a claim for them to be making as they look at Jesus, the one who is supposed to be bringing in the kingdom of heaven, and they see him, and they accuse him of advancing the kingdom of Satan. How does Jesus respond to this? It's a long response. Matthew's usually fairly concise with his descriptions of things and, and how he puts things, but he, sp- he spends a lot of time on this section, on this response of Jesus. And he, I think he's showing us just how important Jesus' words here are and, and what we see in them is, is devastating. Jesus, first of all, shows them just how ridiculous their claim is. And then he shows them how sinful they are to resist him. And then he warns them they're actually in danger of being shut out of the kingdom with uh, no possibility of getting in. For, first, he, he points out the obvious truth to them that uh, a kingdom which is divided against itself is not going to stand. Civil war is going on, the country's not in a good spot, right? Jesus is saying if there's a kingdom or a city or a house and it's full of conflict and it's divisive, it's not going to last something's going to give, it's going to collapse, it's going to fall down. What king or general would order his troops to start firing on his own soldiers? Jesus is is saying to the Pharisees, it's a ridiculous thing for them to say that he's advancing the kingdom of Satan when he's going around casting out demons. Satan would have no reason to do that. Satan is not stupid. He would not do this. This can't be the work of Satan. This supernatural power Jesus is showing has to come from somewhere else. Second, he points out the fact that the Pharisees have apparently overlooked that other Jews cast out demons. He says, your sons cast out demons, probably referring to those who follow Pharisee, the Pharisees' teaching. And there's some of them who are also going around and casting out demons, not as many or with the kind of authority that Christ has. But, but this is happening in this, in this period of history in, in Israel. And the Pharisees are saying nothing about it. They're not going out after those other Jews and saying, well, you must be filled with the spirit of Beelzebub because you're casting out demons. Right? Jesus is saying, so they're they're not being fair at all. Their critique of Christ has nothing to do with the fact that they really think that he's possessed by Beelzebub. So where does Jesus' authority over the kingdom of darkness come from then? As he's arguing with the Pharisees here, it can't be the powers of darkness giving him this power. Um, Only one answer. It can only be the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Who else could give someone this kind of authority over the powers of darkness? It's only the one who's filled with the Spirit who has this kind of authority over these supernatural beings. And Jesus says, and if that's true, and it is true, then the kingdom of heaven is on you. God's kingdom is upon you. I want you to think, think through me, uh, with, with me here through what Jesus, through the argument he's making, He's saying, the presence of the Spirit of God, the powerful presence of the Spirit of God, coming as He is here in, in power in the ministry of Christ, demonstrates the presence of the kingdom of God. the presence of the Spirit of God filling the Messiah for the work that he's doing demonstrates the presence of the kingdom of God. All all through the Old Testament, we see see the Spirit present. We see Him working in the lives of believers. He gives regeneration to believers. He gives faith to believers. But the Spirit would would, would come in a special way on particular heroes of the Old Testament as well. Um, Samson, Samuel, Samuel. Uh, Saul, David, the prophets, all, all of them had the spirit of the Lord on them to, to speak things, to do things, to do things that no ordinary man could do um, and, to, and to save the, the people of Israel from their enemies. And then that, that's all building this expectation throughout the Old Testament that there's going to be one greater than all these other heroes who will come full of the spirit and bring the final, ultimate kingdom of God, we we saw this last week. Isaiah forty two, um, uh, Isaiah forty two says, "I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles." Isaiah eleven two, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him: the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Or Isaiah sixty one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So the whole Old Testament is making the case that the Christ will be filled with the Spirit. The Christ who comes to build the kingdom will be filled with the Spirit. And this is what we see in the Gospels. Matthew starts his gospel this way, as he tells us about the birth of Christ. Uh, The angel says to Joseph, that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, his earthly ministry is about to begin, and the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and rests on him, symbolizing that he's been filled with the Spirit for the ministry of the Messiah. So Jesus' argument is, the Spirit's here filling me, working in these unprecedented ways. That means the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is upon you. And you Pharisees are seeing it all around you. Satan's kingdoms being plundered. The, 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 the power of the Spirit in Christ, right? by that power, he's bound Satan. He says, you can't rob a strong man's house unless you first go bind the strong man, tie him up, restrain him, and then you can plunder his house and do what you want with it. Jesus is saying, by the Spirit I have come. I've burst into the kingdom of darkness. I've bound Satan, and I'm plundering his house. I am calling those who are slaves to him to come into my kingdom of light and grace and peace. Jesus says the kingdom is here. This, this kingdom is upon you. It's, it's here. Jesus is destroying the works of the devil. One, one commentator says he's carrying out an unrelenting war against all the demonic forces. He's crushing the serpent's head. He's taking the sting of death. He's saving people from slavery to sin. And this is, as we said, the, the, the battle, the, the, great, the, the D-Day moment in redemptive history as Christ brings in this, this kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, it is wonderful news for us that Christ has come and done this. It's glorious news for you and for me that Christ has done this. That, that he's come, that his kingdom has already begun, that he's established it and he will consummate it. It's wonderful news. We, we need to hear this, right? We are so often discouraged when we see the power of sin in our hearts and lives. Or when we feel the, the weight of the curse and our mortality. Or when we look around and we see the influence of the powers of darkness on our culture or in our church. But Jesus says that he's bound the strong man. He's crushed the serpent's head. Right? He has won the great victory. He's overpowered the powers of darkness. They have no hold or sway on us. Christ has come. Jesus is stronger than all of them. His Spirit is stronger than all of them. This should fill us with a sense of freedom and delight that He has done this for us and, and a sense that, uh, of, of courage, not of fear in the face of the challenges around us and in us. The kingdom is here. The Spirit is working. It cannot fail. But the Pharisees, they look at Jesus, and they reject him. So Jesus then turns a laser-focused question back on them to ask them whose side they're on, whose kingdom they're in. So let's look now at the second point. The king commands you to receive him. Verses 30 and 37, 30 through 37. Jesus gives severe words in this next section. He, he puts a fine point on things. He's, he's confronting unbelief. He's confronting unbelief that digs its heels in, refuses to acknowledge what's so plain. Um, and and he, he's administering spiritual shock treatment for those who are, who are locked into their stubborn unbelief. These cold, dead hearts of the Pharisees. He's, he's trying to, to wake them up. His words are a warning to us also. First, he says, you can't be neutral. The kingdom's here. You can't be neutral towards it. Verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. There are some conflicts where you can choose to get involved or you can sit this one out. Right? You, can, you can pick a side or you can just stand back, watch how it unfolds, and not get involved. Can you do that with Christ in His kingdom? No. Jesus says the, the conflict's here. The kingdom is coming. You're either in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. There's no imaginary middle ground that we can find where we're not on one side or the other. We're just trying to be decent people and not hurt anybody. But you've got to be either all in in the kingdom of Christ or you're in the kingdom of Satan. We try to resist this, I think. Um, we try to find that middle ground, that comfortable position where we don't have to join in the conflict on one side or the other. Um, we, 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 we think that if we can carve out a little niche for ourselves where we live for our own, our own self-interest and our own little kingdom and our own agenda, we can just kind of forget about Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of Satan and not worry about it all. But D.A. Carson writes, Failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is as dangerous as outright opposition. Failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is as dangerous as outright opposition. Second, Jesus gives a warning about the kind of attitude um, that understands whole well who he is, what the Spirit's doing in him, but rejects it and blasphemes the Holy Spirit. He says this sin is so blatant and so defiant that it's beyond the possibility of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, the words in these verses should stop us in our tracks. These are, these are startling words, severe words. They're hard to hear. Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins. And that's why He came. That's why He's named Jesus, because He forgives His people from their sins. He saves His people from their sins. And yet he says, there's a sin which I, the one who have authority to forgive, will refuse to forgive. And he says it's, it's, it's to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? What is the unforgivable sin? What, what is he describing here? It's the, it's the sin of the person who understands who Jesus is, who understands... What his kingdom means, who understands that he is the Messiah filled with the Holy Spirit, but who spits on that and turns away from it and walks away. It's, it's not the person who's confused about who Jesus is or confused about his kingdom. It's not the person who thinks they are genuinely serving God. Think of think of the Apostle Paul before he comes to faith. He looks like he's fighting the kingdom, and he is fighting the kingdom and, and persecuting Christ Himself. But but he doesn't he, he does not know who Christ is and understand who Christ is. If he and it's and it's when Christ opens his heart by His sovereign grace, Paul comes to faith in who He is. The the unforgivable sin is different. It's the person who identifies the work of the Spirit in Christ and says it's the work of Satan, not because he genuinely thinks that it is, but because he's so dead set against it and so refusing to bow his heart to Christ. It's the person who knows who Christ is and hates who Christ is and rejects who Christ is. This means... um, that the unforgivable sin is a greater danger for those inside the visible church than those outside of it. For, for those who are members of the visible covenant community than those who are outside it. Jesus' words in this text are aimed squarely at the Pharisees and those like them. Right? They have so many privileges. They've got the Word of God. They know it front and back. They, they know it through and through. They are raised up, steeped in the prophecies about the Messiah who would come They know what the work of the Spirit would look like, but when they see it, they are jealous and they hate it because it's challenging their own self righteousness, their own ambitions, and they reject it. Other texts in Scripture shed some light on this. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 gives us this warning it says, It's impossible. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's not, it's not, it's not possible to lose the salvation that we have in Christ. It's not possible for for the elect to be lost or for one who's been bound by the Holy Spirit in union with Christ to be lost. But it is possible for someone to think they are and for someone to, uh, to, 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 to enjoy much of the taste and savor of the things of God and the gospel, but not have real saving faith and to fall away and to not be able to be restored to persist in that and walk away from it and not turn and not repent. And Jesus is saying there's a point at which you can't come back. It's a warning. How do we respond to these words about this unforgivable sin? It's not meant to keep anxious consciences awake at night. Jesus is not saying this to make us anxious and uh, just kind of curved in looking inside ourselves with just a morbid introspection. Um, that's, that's not what he's designed this for. If you are worrying that God might not forgive you, if you're worried about the fact that you might have committed the unforgivable sin and not have a place in His kingdom, it's probably a sign that you haven't. Because it's a concern to you, it's, it's, and it's a, it's a struggle, and it's a grief to you. And, and you, 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 you want forgiveness. You want repentance. And if that's true of you, then, then, then uh, God, is, uh, God has grace for you. Jesus did not intend these words to be a torture instrument to, to our consciences. Um, he meant them to be a wake-up call to calloused consciences. If you come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, you will find forgiveness no matter what you've done. Come to Him, repenting, faith in Him, you will find forgiveness no matter what you've done. But if you persist in defying Him and defying the work of the Holy Spirit in Him and continue that defiant, high-handed rebellion against Him, even though you know full well exactly who He is and exactly what He's done uh, and what the Spirit has done through Him and in Him, then there's a warning. There's no forgiveness for those who persist in that. Third aspect of the warning that Jesus gives here is that we need to keep a close watch on our words and a close watch on our hearts if we're going to bear fruit that vindicates us before God at the Day of Judgment. He gives us a picture, a word picture, to illustrate his point. Verse 33, he he, he gives us this picture of a healthy tree. Healthy tree produces healthy fruit. Unhealthy tree produces unhealthy fruit. He's saying that a spiritually healthy person produces spiritually healthy fruit and a spiritually unhealthy person produces spiritually rotten fruit. Um, Jesus looks at the Pharisees. He sees their bad fruit, evil words, evil actions, and he sees it as gushing from a heart that is evil. He doesn't tiptoe around here. He he calls them out. You brood of vipers, he says, right? you're you're, 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 You're the offspring of poisonous snakes. Um, uh, evil, treacherous, deceitful, malicious, poisonous. Uh, He's identifying their hearts, that spiritual control center, uh, as as full of sin, nothing good in them, an abundance of evil. And uh, their their defiance of Jesus and the Spirit and the kingdom of God is an overflow of the heart that is gorged and choked on their self-centered rebellion against God. He calls them out. And he says, they're going to face judgment for this. God is going to hold them account for the overflow of their evil hearts. Uh, He's going to hold them account, he says, for every careless word they've ever said. And if the overflow of their hearts doesn't meet God's standard of justice, they will not be justified. They will be condemned. He's saying they're they're in danger of hell. They're in danger of condemnation. That image we get from Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, of a, of, a, of a sinner held by a single spider's web uh, threat over the pit of hell and at any instant it'll snap and condemnation comes that's what Jesus is, is telling the Pharisees here that, is, that, that, that everything in them is evil and they face condemnation and punishment at the hand of God what about ourselves what about us Well, we face the same judgment, right? We we face the same judge, the same standard, don't we? Uh, Jesus includes both our hearts and our words here. He says, you'll be judged according to every word you've said, the things that come out of your mouth, which are sourced in your heart. And you're going to be judged for what your heart is, whether your heart is sound and, and spiritually healthy, or whether it will be found wanting when weighed on the scales of divine justice. Does Jesus mean then that our justification is based on our words and works and heart and our own holiness and righteousness? He's not saying that. We're justified by His righteousness, not ours. But but He's saying that those who've been justified by faith in Him will will have fruit and evidence of that in their lives. And that on the day of judgment, God will will look at our lives and it will add up. He'll, He'll see fruit there, real fruit. From a life united to Christ and it won't be the basis of our justification but it'll be it'll be the evidence of that saving faith in Christ and his righteousness uh, uh, for, for us that's the sense of christ's words here so we need, we need hearts that are humbled before Christ hearts that are, that are that are humble before him we need hearts that have been saved by Christ conquered by Christ and brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his gospel. On the day of judgment, we will stand before God, and He will look at our lives. And by His by His grace, may He may He see a heart conquered by Christ. Um, that's that's what we want. We want we want. Uh, We want words that confess sin and words that confess faith in Christ and and, and praise to Christ and lives that that show that consistency with that gospel that we proclaim. We want him to look at our lives and to see all that, see those kinds of words, not words that denied him, denied our sin. Where does all this leave us, brothers and sisters? We come to the end of the warning. Uh, Where does it leave us? what we are supposed to be left with after hearing these words is just crying out to Christ. Conquer my heart, Lord. My sinful heart. Overcome my sinful speech. Bring me out of the kingdom of darkness. Bring me into your kingdom. Bind me to you. Keep me for you. Transform me from the inside out. Keep me from idle words. Uh, Fill me with your spirit. Bring me into the kingdom of your gracious gospel. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Christ has come in the power of the Spirit. So come to him and ask him to be the king of your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our good and gracious King. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for how you offer to him as a free, gracious sacrifice for sinners. Lord, we pray that we would hold fast to him by faith. Lord, keep us from that high-handed defiance of Christ. Humble us before him. Work faith and repentance in us, all for his glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.